Chapter 4 of Southern Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Southern Arabia by James and Mabel Bent. Chapter 4 Some Historical Facts About Oman. On two separate occasions, we visited Muscat. The first time was in 1889 on our way to Persia and the second in 1895, when we were starting for Dofar, on the journey which I shall describe later. On each occasion we had to reach it by way of India, for like all the rest of the Persian Gulf, Muscat is really an outlying portion of our Indian Empire. By just crossing a range of mountains in Persia, you cross the metaphorical watershed between our India and foreign offices. At Shiraz you hesitate between India and England, you ask the question, shall I send my letters via Bombay or via Russia? You hasten to get rid of your rupees, for this is the last place where their merit is recognized. North of Shiraz, you are in a distinctly foreign country. Our officials hail from the foreign office and belong to the legation of Tehran. You are no longer under British protection. You are in the dominions of the Shah. But so long as you are on the shores of the Gulf, you are, so to speak, in India. The officials receive their pay in degenerate rupees instead of pounds sterling, they live in bungalows, they talk of tiffin, and eat curry at every meal. We keep a British ship of war in the Gulf. We feel that it is a matter of the first importance that those countries should remain under our protection, and that the Turks should not build forts at Fow and otherwise interfere with our trade in the Karun, and that no other power should have a foothold thereon. The last generation talked much about a Euphrates Valley Railway, with its terminus at Kuwait. We now hear a great deal about the opening up of the Karun. But it is the lordship of the Gulf which is the chief matter of importance just at present both for India and for ourselves. In this district, Muscat is the most important point. The Kingdom of Oman, of which it is nominally the capital, commands the entrance to the Gulf. In the ninth century of the Christian era, ships trading from Sharif to China took in water at Muscat from the wells, which still supply the town. Between Aden and the Persian Gulf, it is the only harbor where ships of any size can find anchorage, and it may, in fact, be said to play much the same part with respect to the Persian Gulf that Aden does to the Red Sea. In many other ways, the places are strikingly similar. They are both constructed on arid volcanic rocks, which produce the smallest amount of verdure and reflect the greatest amount of heat. Water in both of them is the scarcest of commodities. Of all places in the world, Muscat has the reputation of being the hottest, facing, as it does, the Indian Ocean, and protected from every cooling breeze by rugged volcanic hills, without a blade of cultivation upon them, and which reflect and intensify the scorching rays of the burning sun. Aden is said to have but a piece of brown paper between it and the infernal fires. Muscat would seem to want even this meager protection, and gives, as a Persian poet has expressed it, to the panting sinner a lively anticipation of his future destiny. The approach to the cove of Muscat is highly striking. Many-colored volcanic rocks of fantastic form protect the horseshoe-shaped harbor, whilst behind the white town, as far as the eye can reach, stretch deeply serrated arid mountains, which culminate in the heights of Jebel Akhdar, or the Green Mountains, some fifty miles as the crow flies inland, 
reaching an elevation of nine thousand feet we were told that snow sometimes falls in the winter time on jebel akhdar and it rejoices in a certain amount of verdure from which it derives its name this range forms the backbone of oman and at its foot lie nezwa and rostak the old capitals of the long line of imams of oman before muscat was a place of so much importance as it is at present the streams which come down from these mountains nowhere reach the sea but are lost in the deserts and nevertheless in some places they fertilize oases in the omani desert where the vegetation is most luxuriant and fever very rife grapes grow on the slopes of jebel akhdar and the inhabitants despite the strictures of mohammed both make and drink wine of them and report says how far it is true i know not that the portuguese exported thence the vines to which they gave the name of muscatel the inhabitants of this wild range are chiefly bedou and pastoral and it is from this quarter that the troubles which beset the poor sultan faisal generally emanate the harbour of muscat is full of life the deep blue sea is studded with tiny craft canoes painted red green and white steered by paddles swarm around the steamer fishermen paddling themselves about on a plank or two tied together or swimming astride of a single one hawk their wares from boat to boat the oars of the larger boats are generally made with a flat circular piece of wood fastened on to a long pole and are really more like paddles than oars in the northern corner lie huddled together large dows which during the northeast monsoons make the journey to zanzibar returning at the change of the season most of these belong to banyan merchants in muscat and are manned by indian sailors close to them is the small steamer sultania which was presented by the sultan of zanzibar to his cousin sultan turkey of muscat now a perfectly useless craft which cannot even venture outside the harbor by reason of the holes in its side from its mast floats the red banner of oman the same flag that arab boats at aden fly it was originally the banner of yemen to which place the arabs who rule in oman trace their origin for early in our era according to arab tradition oman was colonized and taken possession of by descendants of the old hemurites of yemen the shore of the town is very unpleasant reeking with smells and at low tide lined with all the refuse and offal of the place at high tide shoals of fish come in to feed on this refuse and in their train follow immense flocks of seagulls which make the edge of the water quite white as they fly along and dive after their prey here and there out of the sand peep the barrels of some rusty old cannon ghostly relics of the portuguese occupation in the middle of the beach is the sultan's palace but it is immeasurably inferior to the new residency of the british political agent which stands at the southern extremity of the town just where it can get all the breeze that is to be had through a gap in the rocks opening to the south here we were most hospitably entertained by colonel hayes sadler on our second sojourn even in this favored position the heat in summer is almost unendurable making muscat one of the least coveted posts that the indian government has at its disposal the cliffs immediately round the town are of a shiny schist almost impossible to walk upon and reflect the rays of the sun with great intensity on either side of the town stand two old portuguese forts kept up and manned by the sultan's soldiers 
In them are still to be seen old rusty pieces of ordnance, one of which bears a Portuguese inscription with the date 1606, and the name and arms of Philip III of Spain. Also, the small Portuguese chapel in the fort is preserved and bears the date of 1588. These are the principal legacies left to posterity by those intrepid pioneers of civilization, in a spot which they occupied for nearly a century and a half. These forts testify to having been of great size and strength in former times, and show considerable architectural features, and the traces of a luxuriant and opulent population. With regard to the ancient history of Oman, there is little known. The empire of the Himyarites, which filled Yemen and the Hadramaut Valley with interesting remains, does not appear to have extended its sway so far eastward. No Sabaean remains have as yet been found in Oman, nor are there any that I have heard of further east than the frankincense country of Dhofar, over six hundred miles west of Muscat. Neither Ptolemy nor the author of the Periplus gives us any definite information about the existence of a town in the harbor of Muscat, and consequently the first reliable information we have to go upon is from the early Arabian geographers. From Torisi we learn that Sobar was the most ancient town of Oman, but that in his day Muscat was flourishing, and that in old times the China ships used to sail from there. Oman was included in Yemen by these earlier geographers, doubtless from the fact that Arabs from Yemen were its first colonizers. But all that is known with any certainty is that, from the ninth century A.D., a long line of imams ruled over Oman, with their capitals at Nezwa or Rostak, at the foot of Jabal Akhdar. This title, by which the Arab rulers were known, had been conferred on the Arab rulers of Oman for centuries, and signifies a sort of priest-king like Melchizedek, to whom, curiously enough, is given the same title in the Quran. The election was always by popular acclamation, and inasmuch as the Omani do not recognize the two imams who immediately succeeded Muhammad, but chose their own, they form a separate sect. In olden days, the men of Oman were called outsiders by their Mohammedan brethren, because they recognized their own chief solely as the head of their own religion, and are known otherwise as the Ibadiyat or Ibaduya, followers of Abdullah bin Ibad, as distinct from the Shi'i, Shiites, and Sunni, between which sects the rest of Islam is pretty equally divided. Internecine wars were always rife amongst them, but at the same time these early Omani had little or no intercourse with the outer world. Of the internal quarrels of the country, the Omani historian Salid bin Rajik has given a detailed account, but for the rest of the world they are of little interest. In those days Oman seems to have had two ports, Sur and Kalhat, on the Indian Ocean, which were more frequented than Muscat. Marco Polo, 1280 A.D., calls the second Kalati in his journal, and describes it as a large city in a gulf called also Kalatu, and the Omani paid tribute to the Melek, or king of Hormuz, for many generations. But with the rise of Muscat, Sur and Kalhat declined. Oman first came into immediate contact with Europeans in the year 1506, when Albuquerque appeared in Muscat Harbor bent on his conquest of the Persian Gulf, and with the object, not even yet accomplished, of making a route to India by way of the Euphrates Valley. From Albuquerque's commentaries we get a graphic description of the condition of the country when he reached it. At first the Arabs were inclined to receive the Portuguese without a struggle. 
but taking courage from the presence of a large army of bedouin in the vicinity they soon showed treacherous intentions toward the invaders so that the portuguese admiral determined to attack the town and destroy it and the commentator states that within were burned many provisions thirty-four ships in all large and small many fishing barks and an arsenal full of every requisite for shipbuilding after effecting a landing the portuguese ordered three gunners with axes to cut the supports of the mosque which was a large and very beautiful edifice the greater part being built of timber finely carved and the upper part of stucco and it was accounted a propitious miracle by the portuguese that the men who performed this deed were not killed by the falling timber muscat was then burnt and utterly destroyed and having cut off the ears and noses of the prisoners he liberated them the commentator concludes his remarks on muscat as follows muscat is of old a market for carriage of horses and dates it is a very elegant town with very fine houses it is the principal entrepot of the kingdom of ormuz into which all the ships that navigate these parts must of necessity enter the hundred and forty years during which the portuguese occupied muscat and the adjacent coast town was a period of perpetual trouble and insurrection the factory and forts of jalali and marani were commenced in fifteen twenty seven but the forts in their present condition were not erected till after the union of portugal and spain in fifteen eighty the order for their erection came from madrid and the inscription bears the date fifteen eighty eight not only were the arabs constantly on the lookout to dislodge their unwelcome visitors but the turks attacked them likewise with a navy from the side of the persian gulf and the naval victory gained by the portuguese off muscat in fifteen fifty four is considered by turkish historians to have been a greater blow to their power than the better known battle off Prevesa in fifteen thirty eight where Doria defeated Barbarossa and obliged Suleiman to relinquish his attempt on Vienna. When, after the union of Portugal with Spain, the colonial activity of the former country declined, the colonies in the Persian Gulf fell one by one into the hand of the Persians and the Arabs. Out of the kingdom of Oman they were driven in 1620 and confined to the town of Muscat by the victorious imam, Nasser bin Murshid, during whose reign of twenty-six years the legend is told that no man in oman died a natural death two years later they were also driven from muscat itself and those two forts jalali and marani which they had built the last foothold of the portuguese on the omani territory were taken from them the historian salil tells the amusing story of the final fall of muscat into the hands of the arabs the portuguese governor pereira was deeply enamoured of the daughter of a banyan merchant of muscat the man at first refused to let him have his daughter but at length consented on condition that the wedding did not take place for some months pereira was now entirely in the hands of the banyan and did everything he told him so the crafty indian communicated with the arabs outside portuguese territory telling them to be ready when due notice was given to attack the town. He then proceeded to persuade Pereira to clean out the water tanks of the fort, and to clear out the old supplies of food preparatory to revictualling them. Then, when the forts were without food and water, and finally having damped all the powder, he gave notice to the Arabs, who attacked and took the town on a Sunday evening when the Portuguese were carousing captain hamilton gives another account in his travels beginning of footnote seven pinkerton volume eight
end of footnote seven and tells us that the arabs were exasperated by a piece of pork wrapped up in paper being sent as a present to the imam by the governor pereira and he also adds that the portuguese were all put to the sword save eighteen who embraced mohammedanism and that the portuguese cathedral was made the imam's palace where he took up his residence for a month or two every year since those days these two forts have been regularly used by rival claimants to the sovereignty of oman as convenient points of vantage from which to pepper one another to the infinite discomfiture of the inhabitants beneath the departure of the portuguese did not greatly benefit the omani writing in sixteen twenty four to the east india company thomas carriage speaks of muscat as a beggarly poor town and ormuz he says is become a heap of ruins at last in seventeen thirty seven owing to the jealousies of the rival imams said and ibn murshad muscat was taken by the persians they were however soon driven out again by ahmed bin sayyid or saud a man of humble origin but a successful general as a reward for his services he was elected imam in seventeen forty one and was the founder of the dynasty which still rules there the successors of Ahmed bin Sayyid found the obligations of being imam, and the oath which it entailed to fight against the infidel, both awkward and irksome, so his grandson, Saud, who succeeded in 1779, never assumed the title of imam, but was content with that of sultan, and consequently the imamate of Oman has, with one short exception, been in abeyance ever since." Under the first rulers of this dynasty, Oman became a state of considerable importance. During the reigns of Sultan Saud and his son, Sultan Saud Sayyid, a large part of the Arabian mainland was under the rule of Oman, as also Bahrain, Hormuz, Larij, Qisham, Bandar Abbas, many islands in their pearl fisheries, and Linga, also a good part of the coast of Africa and it was they who established the alliances with england and the united states the first political relations between the east india company and the ruler of oman took place in seventeen ninety eight the object being to secure the alliance of oman against the dutch and french a second treaty was made two years later and it was provided in it that an english gentleman of respectability on the part of the honorable east india company should always reside at the port of muscat an English gentleman of respectability has, consequently, resided there ever since, and from the days of Sultan Sayyid has become the chief factor in the government of the place. Sultan Sayyid bin Sayyid stands out prominently as the great ruler of Oman, and under his rule Oman and its capital, Muscat, reached the greatest pitch of eminence to be found in all its annals. He ascended the throne in 1804 and reigned for fifty-two years. He found his country in dire distress at the time of his accession, owing to the attacks of the fanatical Wahhabi from Central Arabia, who had carried their victorious arms right down to Muscat, and had imposed their bigoted rules and religious regulations on the otherwise liberal-minded Mohammedans of Eastern Arabia. With Turkish aid on the one hand, and British support on the other, Sultan Sayyid succeeded in relieving his country from these terrible scourges, and drove them back into the central province of Nejd, from which they had carried their bloodthirsty and fanatical wars over nearly the whole of the peninsula. And when all fear from the Wahhabi was over, Sultan Sayyid extended his conquests in all directions. 
He occupied several points on the Persian Gulf and the opposite coast of Baluchistan, and materially assisted the Indian government in putting down the piracy which had for long closed the Gulf to all trade. And finally, in 1856, he added the important Arab settlement of Mombasa in Zanzibar on the African coast to his dominion. During this long reign, Muscat prospered exceedingly. It was the great trade center for the Persian Gulf, inasmuch as it was a safe depot, where merchants could deposit their goods without fear of piracy. Vessels going to and from India, before the introduction of steam, used frequently to stop at Muscat for water. As a trade center in those days, it was almost as important as Aden, and with the Indian government, Sultan Sayyid was always on most friendly terms. When Sultan Sayyid died, the usual dispute took place between his successors. England promptly stepped in to settle this dispute, and with the foresight she so admirably displays on such occasions, she advocated a division of Sayyid's empire. Zanzibar was given to one claimant, Oman to the other, and for the future Oman and Sultan Turkey remained under British protection. Since the death of Sultan Sayyid, the power of Oman has most lamentably gone down, partly owing to the very success of his attempts to put down piracy. This, followed by the introduction of steam, has diminished the importance of Muscat as a safe port for the merchants to deposit their wares. It is also partly due to the jealousies which prevail between the descendants of Sayyid, who rule in Zanzibar and in Muscat. Palgrave in 1863 describes Muscat as having 40,000 inhabitants. There are probably half that number now. The Sultan of Zanzibar has to pay an annual tribute of 40,000 crowns to his relative of Muscat in order to equalize the inheritance, and this tribute being a constant source of trouble, of late years he has taken to urging the wild Bedouin tribes in Oman to revolt against the present, rather weak-minded Sultan who reigns there. He supplies them with the sinews of war, namely money and ammunition, and the insurrection which occurred in February 1895 was chiefly due to this mode of power. One of his sisters married a German, the English conniving in her escape from Zanzibar in a gunboat. On her husband's death, her elder brother having in the meantime also died, she returned to Zanzibar, thinking her next brother, the present sultan, to be of a milder disposition, but he refused to take any notice of her and her children. The present ruler of Muscat, Sultan Faisal, is a grandson of Sultan Sayyid and son of Sultan Turkey by an Abyssinian mother. Since his accession in 1889, he has been vacillating in his policy. He has practically had but little authority outside the walls of Muscat, and were it not for the support of the British government and the proximity of a gunboat, he would long ago have ceased to rule. When we first saw him in 1889, he was but a beardless boy, timid and shy and now he has reached man's estate. He still retains the nervous manner of his youth. He lives in perpetual dread of his elder brother Mahmoud, who, being the son of a negress, was not considered a suitable person to inherit the throne. The two brothers, though living in adjacent houses, never meet without their own escorts to protect them from each other. The way in which Faisal obtained possession of the sultan's palace on his father's death, to the exclusion of his brother, is curious. Faisal said his grief for his father was so great that his feelings would not admit of his attending the funeral, so he stayed at home while Mahmoud went, who, on his return, found the door locked in his face. The palace is entered by a formidable-looking door, 
decorated with large spiked bosses of brass. This opens into a small court which contained at the time of our first visit the most imposing sight of the place, namely, the lion in his cage to the left, into which Faisal was in the habit of introducing criminals of the deepest dye, to be devoured by this lordly executioner. Opposite to this cage of death is another, a low probationary cage, which, when we were there, contained a prisoner stretched out at full length, for the cage is too low to admit of a sitting posture. From this point he could view the horrors of the lion's cage, so that during his incarceration he might contemplate what might happen to him if he continued, on liberation, to pursue his evil ways. Another door leads into a vaulted passage full of guards, through which we passed and entered into an inner court, with a pool in the centre and a wide cloister around it supporting a gallery. Sultan Faisal was then a very young man, not much over twenty. He was greatly interested in seeing us, for we were the first English travellers who had visited him since his accession. We caught sight of him peeping at us over the balcony as we passed through the courtyard below, and we had to clamber up a ladder to the gallery, where we found him ready to welcome us. He seized our hands and shook them warmly, and then led us with much effusiveness to his chawa, a long room just overhanging the sea, which is his reception and throne room. Here were high, cane-bottomed chairs round the walls, and at one end a red chair, which is the throne. Just over it were hung two grotesque pictures of our queen and the prince consort, such as one could buy for a penny at a fair. They are looked upon as objects of great value here, and act as befitting symbols of our protectorate. The imam fed us with sweets and coffee, asked us innumerable questions, and seemed full of boyish fun. Certainly with his turban of blue and red checked cotton, which would have been a housemaid's duster at home, his faded greenish-yellow cloak fastened round his slender frame by a red girdle, he looked anything but a king. As we were preparing to depart, the young monarch grew apparently very uneasy, and impatiently shouted something to his attendants. And when the servant came in, Faisal hurried to him, seized four little gilt bottles of attar of roses, thrust two of them into each of our pockets, and with some compliments as to our queen having eyes everywhere, and Faisal's certainty that she would look after him, the audience was at an end. Sultan Faisal was a complete autocrat as far as his jurisdiction extended. At his command, a criminal could be executed either in the lion's cage or in a little square by the sea, and his body cut up and thrown into the waves. The only check upon him was the British resident. His father, Turkey, not long before, sewed up a woman in a sack and drowned her, whereupon a polite message came from the residency requesting him not to do such things again. Hence, young Faisal dared not to be very cruel. To offend the English would have been to lose his position. His half-brother, Mahmud, whose mother was a Swahili, lives next door to his brother, Sultan Faisal, in the enjoyment of a pension of six hundred dollars a month. The uncles, however, are not so amenable. The eldest of them, according to Arabian custom, claimed the throne and had collected an army amongst the Bedouin to assert his claims, and was then in possession of all the country, with the exception of Muscat and El Matra, for Faisal had no money and hence he could not get his soldiers to fight. But then it had been intimated to Faisal that in all probability the English would support his claims if he conducted himself prudently and wisely. 
so there was every likelihood that in due course he would be thoroughly established in the dominions of his father when we visited the town for the second time an even more serious rebellion was impending the bedouin of the interior under sheikh saleh having attacked muscat itself the sultan and his brother who hastily became friends retired together to the castle and the town was given up to plunder there were dead bodies lying on the beach and but for the kindness of colonel hay sadler the british resident there would have been difficulties in the fort as regards water they relied principally on h m s sphinx which lay in the harbour to protect british interests and to maintain sultan faisal in his position this state of terror lasted three weeks when the rebels having looted the bazaars and wrecked the town were eventually persuaded to retire free and unpunished with a considerable cash payment probably intending to return for more when the cooler weather should come and the date harvest be over with the consent of and at the request of the indian government sultan faisal has imposed additional heavy duty on all the produce coming in from the rebel tribes that he may have a fund from which to pay indemnities to foreigners who suffered loss during the invasion a good many banyan merchants british subjects suffered losses and their claim alone amounted to one hundred and twenty thousand rupees as a natural result of this disaster and its ignominious termination sultan faisal's authority at the present moment is absolutely nil outside the walls of muscat and el matra and he is still in a state of declared war with all the bedouin chiefs in the mountains behind muscat a few british subjects were scared but not killed and as all was over in a few weeks no one thought much more about it except those more immediately interested and few paused to think what an important part muscat has played in the opening up of the persian gulf and the suppression of piracy and what an important part it may yet play should the lordship of the persian gulf ever become a casus belli although muscat has been under indian influence for most of this century it has latterly gone down much in the world the trade of the place has well nigh departed and with a weak sultan at the head of affairs confidence will be long in returning unquestionably our own political agent may be said to be the ruler in muscat and his authority is generally backed up by the presence of a gunboat. There is also an American consul there, who chiefly occupies himself in trade and steamer agencies, and in 1895 the French also sent a consul to inquire into the question of the slave trade, which is undoubtedly the burning question in Arabia. Whilst England has been doing all she can to put slavery down, it is complained that much is carried on under cover of the French flag, obtained by arab dows under false pretexts from the french consul resident in zanzibar sultan faisal remonstrated with france on this point and the appointment of a consul is the result the great reason for our unpopularity in arabia is due without doubt to our suppression of this trade slavery is inherent in the arab he does as little work as he can himself and if he is to have no slaves nothing will be done and he must die in other parts of South Arabia, Yemen, the Hadramaut, the Mahra country, and Zofar, slavery is universal, and there is no doubt about it, the slaves are treated very well and live happy lives. But here in Oman, under the very eye of India, slavery must be checked. Our gunboat, the Sphinx, goes the round of the coast to prevent this traffic in human flesh, and frequently slaves swim out to the British steamer and obtain their liberty. This naturally makes us very unpopular in Sur, 
where the Jenefa tribe have their headquarters, the most inveterate slave traders of southern Arabia. The natural result is that whenever they get a chance, the Jenefa tribe loot any foreign vessel wrecked on their shores and murder the crew. In the summer of 1894, however, a boat was wrecked near Rubat al-Hashish, containing some Creoles from the Seychelles Islands. After being driven for forty-five days out of their course by southeast monsoons, during which time three or four of them had died. The survivors were much exhausted, but the Bedouin treated them kindly, for a wonder, and brought them safely to Muscat. For doing this they were handsomely rewarded by the Indian government. Though they had kept possession of the boat and its contents, nevertheless they had saved the lives of the crew, and this, being a step in the right direction, was thought worthy of reward. The jealousies, however, of other tribes were so great that the rescuers could not return to their own country by the land route, but had to be sent to Sur by sea. Faisal has had copper coins of his own struck, of the value of a quarter anna. On the obverse is a picture of Muscat and its forts, around which in English runs the legend, Sultan Faisal bin Turki Sultan and Imam of Muscat and Oman, and on the reverse is the Arab equivalent. He has also introduced an ice factory, which, however, is now closed, and he wished to have his own stamps, principally with a view to making money out of them. But our agent represented to him that it was beneath the dignity of so great a sultan to make money in so mean a way, and the stamps have never appeared. Sultan Faisal had done much in the last few years since our first visit to modernize his palace. British influence has abolished many horrors and cruelties and the lion, having died, has not been replaced. For the Indian government, the question of Muscat is by no means pleasant, for, should any other power choose to interfere and establish an influence there, it would materially affect the influence which we have established in the Persian Gulf. End of chapter 4